Welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Tool, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. Welcome back to another episode of What the HR. Today we're joined by Steve Brown. He is the Chief People Officer for La Rosa's Inc., a regional pizzeria restaurant chain in Southwest Ohio. They have 11 locations and over 1,100 team members. Steve has been in the HR profession for 35 plus years. He's worked in hospitality, manufacturing, consumer products, and professional services in various different HR roles. He is currently a member of the Society for Human Resource Management Board of Directors and has held several other national, regional, state, and local SHRM volunteer leader roles. He facilitates a monthly HR roundtable as well as an HR internet forum called the HR Net. It reaches over 12,500 people globally every week. He is very active in social media and has a nationally recognized HR blog called Everyday People. He is the author of two best-selling books on HR, HR on Purpose and HR Rising. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please take a second, leave us a review. We greatly appreciate it. Enjoy the episode. All right, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. I'm excited to be with you too. Absolutely. Well, hey, as a way of uh, getting started, can you tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and maybe uh, you know who you work for? Oh, the, uh, I love the formal introduction stuff. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Steve Brown. I'm the Chief People Officer for La Rosa's Pizza. We've been in business 67 years, uh, which is very different for our restaurant concept. Uh, we're kind of a tradition, an iconic place here. And I do everything strategic around HR for the organization, all the people stuff. One of the cool things, I was made chief chief people officer uh, in uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago. And uh, the reason it was is that we have decided to formally be a people-first organization. And they said, well, the person in charge of people should be there. And I went, oh, that's really cool. So, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Congrats, that's great. Absolutely. So it seems like this year, every time we we start these these interviews, we kind of start with the pandemic, just just to hear everybody, because everybody has a different story around it. So I, I want to get to your books and and kind of what you're doing, but can you can we start with kind of a quick rundown of the pandemic, how you handled it, and maybe what you learned coming out of it? Sure. One of the interesting pieces of being in the restaurant industry is we never closed. We were, it was funny. We were considered essential when it first started because people went, oh my gosh, how do I eat? Because everybody was so worried about, I eat out all the time. And then they said, I can't eat out and all the restrictions that came up. So here's some things we learned. One, we had to become agile. Everybody talks about agile, but we don't do it. It's very uh, altruistic. Oh, we've got to be agile. And then 17 months later, something happens. Uh, We had talked about curbside pickup at our locations for three years. Not an exaggeration. And then the CEO, Michael, pulled all the people from operations aside one day and said, I want curbside pickup tomorrow. And so they changed everything they did. And the next day we had it. And you just go, wow. So... As we went back through responding and reacting, because things changed so rapidly and nothing was consistent, uh, we overreacted like everybody else and swung the pendulum really far. And then the regulations that came from the state and the federal government really constricted our business model. 
Uh, but again, we never closed and our team members never went home. Yeah. Uh, the v- vast majority of our people very rarely worked remote. Uh, our frontline people can't. Uh, one of the things coming out of it, I've learned a lot of the talk in conversations in the HR space is white collar based versus blue collar based. So we're not looking at how is work happening. We go, how does work affect white collar people? And we'll make decisions on that. Yeah. I think it's just narrow minded. We have to stop doing that as companies, whether you have a blue collar workforce or not, or even all, all white collar work, you have to talk about work. How is work being done? But agility, so uh, how we reformat, how we talk about work. And the other thing that I love about it is uh, the emotions of people. Uh, we keep saying, bring your whole self to work, accept your emotions. You know, uh, just before we got online, you know, bring your whole life to work, accept your children and your pets. Right. And what does your background look like? And all this just junk. Uh, we've had people be more emotional, and it's been phenomenal. But it's also been hard to respond to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny. I, I don't. I don't want to ever have someone say, "Don't bring your whole self to," or "Bring your whole self to work," but not really mean it anymore. Yeah, uh, it's better to deal with the messy stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you talked about you guys. You wanted to do curbside delivery for so long, and then you had to just do it in an instance. Was did it, did it, was it easier than they, than they thought it was going to be? And the reason I'm asking is I, are there other, you know, things within HR that people want to do, but don't. And I guess the, the actual application tends to be easier. It's just the mindset change. I think it is a mindset change. And I think there's a resistance to change. When everybody says I'm a change agent, be a change agent in your organization. It's a lie. We hate change. And what we don't see is we don't walk people through things contextually. We tend to say, we're moving from this to this. And we don't go, oh, that decision is going to affect X amount of people. We just think it's a good decision. Mm-hmm. So my thing is, uh, one of the things we just came out of, uh, thing, I'm, I'm much more of a simplify the world type guy. So we're doing something really radical called breathe, check. Mike has a great idea. Hey, Mike, before you launch that, take a breath. And then say, who does it affect? It doesn't say stop doing it, but slow down. You have time. Do that and then check who it involves. Talk to those people and then move forward. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to put more mechanisms from an HR standpoint, a people uh, operation standpoint of how do we connect and be a conduit between things to allow work to happen instead of it being clunky, 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 department, 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 uh, good leader, leader I don't like, all the personality stuff that comes up. But mindset is the big thing. Uh, we tend to think of what we're not doing instead of what we are doing. I would much rather say, because we're doing this well, how do we move forward? So a lot of what I'm doing now in my new role is reframing mindsets, having more intentional conversations. The majority of my day, I'll be honest, I talk, <laughs> which is hilarious. What do you do for a living? I talk to people. That's great. But that in your first book too is is that um, you know HR needs to get out of the office, right? Get out, talk to people. You don't want to be viewed as the place you don't want to be sent to or go to. Um, I'd I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about that and how that's 
maybe shaped your culture at where you're working today and just maybe some kind of tips and tricks on getting getting out of maybe the compliance or some of the back office things to get out and actually talking to people more. If you hear the term in your organization, I have to go to HR, it tells you where HR is positioned in your company. Mm -hmm. So HR is, whether it's seen internally on an org chart, it's really viewed as an external function. I go to you only because. Also, HR people, and I had a conversation with one of my team yesterday about this. Well, if I go to the store, what do I talk about? Well, what if you just go to the store? See what happens. Just show up. Yeah. But if I don't have, if I don't have a purpose, I can't go. Here's what's challenging in doing this from an HR perspective and from a work perspective in general. The majority of people at the work are doers. They're great doers. I get something on my calendar. I have a method. I get it done. I knock it off. I move forward. I agree with that. I think there needs to be a mix. There needs to be a relationship component as well as a production component. If we had more relationship stuff, we'd produce things differently. We tend to produce, 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 and we have very uh, shotgun-type conversations. Like, Mike, how you doing? Jess, how you doing? Great, great. We really don't care. And we go do work. Instead of saying, hey, Mike, how's it going today? And give you five minutes of time. Mm -hmm. Five minutes. You might learn more in that five minutes that you just weren't aware of than just doing the drive-by stuff. Yeah. I think you'll also find through those interactions too that the business will start to come to um, their human resources or their people representative for things that maybe aren't even like an area of specialty for the HR or the people expert, but because that relationship has been developed, they you kind of become their first contact, if you will. And then you can either try to solve the problem if that's in your wheelhouse or connect them up with somebody who might be a better resource for them. But creating that trust and that rapport and that relationship out of the gate just opens up a realm of possibilities for not only the HR representative or the HR team, but also frankly, for the business as well. Absolutely on point. One of the things that we're trying now uh, one of my new theories, I love that. I get to be a thinker, mm-hmm. is I don't think there are silos in organizations. I think there are people who lack relationships. If I have a relationship with you, chances are I'm not going to allow you to be siloed. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't people who are difficult or distant, but I need to get you back into, hey, how do I pull Jess back in? Hey, how do I pull Steve back in? And it, it has to be done through relationships, and that takes time. Mm-hmm. Are there some challenges with, if you're the way that you lead the organization from kind of people first, and then you guys being in the industry that you're in, um, it, it's it, it seems like maybe that industry isn't historically known for for running in, in those in that way. I mean, focusing heavily on the culture. How has it made that? You know, how how long have you guys been open now? Sixty-seven years. Sixty-seven years. I'm I'm guessing that the culture that you've you've built is unique in that industry. Can you talk about some of the challenges that the specific industry brings, and then you know maybe how it's how your culture has actually changed over the course of the time you've been there? Sure. I think the biggest challenge facing all organizations, but ours especially, is staffing right now. Right. How do I get? How do I have people enjoy what they do? So here's what's hard. We tend to think think in long term. I'm going to have Mike for 15 years of his career, 
instead of saying, I'm going to have Mike for the time that I have him. So why don't I say, for the time that Mike works for me, I just make it amazing. And if we do that, then we can hopefully increase our retention and quit focusing on turnover. Because when you focus on turnover, it's too late. People are gone. And then you go, well, we'll do exit interviews and go find out why Steve was a bad manager. you're, You're just losing time. So culturally, what we're trying to do is look at a development focus versus a a performance management focus. So hang with me just for a second. I want to develop you every time I talk to you. Every time, every time, every time. I don't have to measure you because I know how it's going. So we're looking at how our operations leadership works with our general managers and our general managers, how they work with their assistant managers, and and then to the front line. We're trying to take a top-down approach only because of communication, not from a leadership standpoint. Uh, but it takes incredible effort and breaking mindsets. I love what you said earlier, Mike. Uh, the idea is if I do this, we won't produce pizza. Uh, right now, while we're on the podcast, they're making pizza. Mm-hmm. Okay, We just lose sight of that. And they're doing a great job doing the production work. So how do we develop the human side of them? And one of the things I'd love to see us change as an uh, industry is quit thinking of human and people relations and people operations as a soft skill. It's business skill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just happens to deal with the human side of who we are. Mm-hmm. Is that, I think, oh, go ahead, Jess. Yeah. I just, I think that's incredible. And as I was uh, listening to you speak there, Steve, I was thinking about a specific grocery store chain that I'm aware of that kind of has a very similar mentality. They tend to actually be kind of a hot spot for like high school kids or kids that have recently graduated from college because they have done such a phenomenal job of being a stepping stone for these young individuals and really teaching them business skills, customer service skills, knowing that that relationship is likely to be relatively short as short as maybe, you know, Hey, I need some employment over the summer, you know, before I go off and do something else, or maybe it's, Hey, I'm going to college and I need to fund that education. And so I'm going to work part-time while I'm going to college and, um, the business leaders of this specific, you know, organization keep that in mind. And they still treat that employee as if it's a career and not just a stepping stone to something else. Sure. Sure. I think that's a healthy way to do it. Uh, if people translate into becoming career restaurant people, they're incredible. Mm-hmm. But they're incredible while they're here, whenever they're here. Uh, if I can teach you how to uh, work in a high production environment and, and truly find out what multitasking is, when mm-hmm. tickets just keep coming out and coming out and coming out and coming out and you don't lose your mind, how do I interact with people who are different than me? How do I communicate better? There's so many things to teach people as well as in the end, they're going to do the good job you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a little biased. I worked in the restaurant industry for eight years and I, you know, 18 years into my human resources career, still tap into examples of when I worked as a server. So awesome. that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you guys take the approach of we have them for as long as we have them. And it, that. So by approaching it that way, it's there really isn't any anxiety about when they're going to leave or how long they'll be there because you guys show up every day and you treat them essentially 
the same, right? I think people get lost in the, to your point, the year, two, three year goals, assuming that people are going to be there for that amount of time. Um, and that allows them to get sidetracked if, if, if retention issues do come up. So within those interactions, Steve, when you talked about, we develop people every time we talk to them, like what, what, can you talk a little bit more about that and how you approach every interaction with people to develop them? This is a real challenge because I, you have to value others in order to have this mindset. So I can't think of the person that bothers me as my example, as my lighthouse. I have to think of the person as, there's a slide I have in a presentation that says, most people are good. I believe that most people are good. Mm-hmm. You got to start there. So instead of saying, well, this person we tend to move more towards this person is the one who sucks my soul away. And that's how all people are. And it's just not true, but we miss the good people. So my thing is you got to be from an HR standpoint of what's going well today. Simple things. Uh, Tell me three good things. Come on, hit me with three good things. And if they say, Oh, my kid just joined the softball team. Well, that's cool. Where do they play softball? And then really take an interest in that understanding. That's not going to be what people do after you leave, but you have to be the model that goes in. And the second thing is I'm trying to teach them the mirror principle. The mirror principle is this. If Jess wants my attention and I give her my attention and she values that, that's so good. We have great interactions. I go, Jess, if this has value, then I want you to turn around and do that with someone else. And so you have to walk people through this. You can't just make it a program. It's daily behavior. The other piece to this is we're trying to be much more of a behavior-based organization because that's how work really happens. Instead of being a process-driven organization, you need processes. This isn't an either-or thing, but I can work on your behaviors far more than I can work on the processes. Uh, Real quick story, we had a manager years ago. uh, We had a cleaning list, and on the cleaning list, the servers, Jess, would check, hey, did you do the cleaning thing? And I looked in the check, 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 check. And I walked out into the restaurant and it was destroyed. And I went, now, wait a minute. So I went to the manager and go, hi, is your restaurant clean? And he says, well, I don't know, because he was in the kitchen. I said, well, tell you what, I read your list, which was the process we had, and it's checked off. Come here. I want to go, look at this. He goes, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I said, don't be sorry for me. Your guests are going to come in here in an hour. Here's what's happening. You've put up a process, we as a company have put up a process that allows the server to go home because that's what she wants to do or he wants to do. So they check the box. You go, oh, I've had a long day. You never really talked to the server. They said, is everything done? Yep, everything's done. And you didn't check and they went home and everybody was happy and you went home. Long day, I get it. So what if we do this? Put somebody in charge of closing. And have them help the people say, hey, Jess, if you get this taken care of, I can get you out an hour earlier. And you work with them through their outwork in order to check the list instead of letting the the list lead. People just don't see it. Uh, But there have to be, if HR was more of a third-party observer to help people do work instead of trying to confine and conform, Hmm. it would change how HR is done. That makes sense. So you guys, so it's not focusing on the kind of nuts and bolts of the the process, but the, so 
when you get you said you guys are moving towards or you are a behavioral organization now is that is that relatively new yes and how how long ago did you guys switch over and tell me about that process Uh, well one of the fun things about being that this is just fun to say i gotta say on the pod is being the chief people officer because you got to say that you know it's kind of oh oh you know is there's all kinds of people who are peers of mine and they come title first and it just blows my mind i'm the this whatever i it, it, i don't get it one of the things that we did is uh, i've been working on something for years about having a playbook not a manual a playbook how do we do work together how do we do life together so in our corporate, in our reset, the reason we had a reset not was not because I became the CPO. Uh, tough story. My boss, who I've been with for 14 plus years, uh, passed away unexpectedly three days before Christmas. He'd been with us only 45 years. And he had grown up with Mike and Mark LaRosa, who are the two brothers who are the owners of the company. So when you lose somebody that has 45 years of institutional knowledge and experience and relationships, it, it crushed us. So now we said, and Michael came and said, we are going to, we're starting over. We're already an incredibly successful company, but we're, we got to change things because no one can be Kevin. Mm-hmm. And so when you come to behavioral, typically companies, if someone leaves, if Mike leaves your company, okay, we go, well, we got to replace Mike. Instead of saying, what needs to happen? What work needs to be done? Is the person or persons who are going to fill this role capable of doing this? Do they have the same capacity? What work needs to be done in that role? So we didn't replace him. And it freaked people out. <laughs> They're like, why aren't you replacing him? Because that's what companies do. Yeah. We said, nope, we're going to do it differently. So part of the playbook was we did an offsite with uh, three members of the family and myself. And I said, what if we did this? So here's language I want to use in the organization from now on. So one of them is from the Sherm board that I'm on. I learned noses in, fingers out. And noses in, fingers out means this. I'm aware of what's going on, but I don't have to do everything. Leaders tend to go, I want to know what's going on, and I'm going to micromanage down to the front line. Mm. Well, don't tell me you have a talent strategy if you're in charge of everything and you're working everything. I want to be aware of what my team's doing, equip them to do it well, but keep my fingers out and trust that they'll do the good work. Mm-hmm. I can change behaviors. So walking down the, the hall, uh, Mike passed me and uh, our CEO, he goes, hey, noses in, fingers out. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, man, I like that. I really like that. He goes, I need that. And I went, okay. Then Mark, uh, our president, said, has a post-it on his computer that says, breathe, check, breathe, check, breathe, check. He goes, I use it every day because, man, I want to lose my mind. So the more I can help the leaders have a behavioral focus, they will in turn do it with their team. Who will there in turn do it in their team? I'm doing, I've gone away from the big launch. I'm stopping the big launch. We've done too many of them. Every company has. They fail or they have a life for a while. You have big parties. We're doing this. Yay, it's the new method. It's the new vision. It's the new mission. And five minutes later, it's not working. We're going to do incremental change to make it sustainable, become, part, become our behavior, and then move from that. And it's, it's a shot in the dark. I think it's going to work, <laughs> but we'll see. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I see that also as a very strategic way of thinking about your business. And you made the comment earlier that if HR people could step forward with their business hat on first versus their people hat, and that's exactly what you did in that scenario, Steve, as you thought about how is this going to better help the business versus let's just do what we've always historically done. Let's backfill this position. Let's go back to the way that things were because to the examples that you gave, things weren't broken. There wasn't really anything to fix. But certainly you could maximize and you could in, in, improve what was already going really well for the organization. And that's exactly what you did. Right. So uh, another quick thing on behavior. So uh, I became the chief people officer. Susie became the chief financial officer. We didn't replace the COO. Everybody kind of freaked out. And we took operations, which is what uh, in a restaurant company is, is 90% operations. And we said, we're going to have them do a 90-day sprint. So we took three people and said, for 90 days, recreate ops. They went, oh, and it is fun and challenging, but they're freaking out. And everybody's like, so who's in charge of operations? No, we operate. We operate. So we're changing the names of our meetings from uh, role-based meetings, like executive leadership meeting to the connections and communications meeting, because that's what the executive should be doing. We're changing behavior. And uh, they're kind enough to let me try it. Uh, I, I, think, I really think it'll work. I think if organizations would do this or have this with the way it works in your organization, mm-hmm. like Jess at yours and Mike at yours, not to copy us. That's one thing I wish we'd get away from on the best practices stuff. I think if you hear the ideas, you take them and then we call it LaRosifying. We LaRosify stuff. And then you go, ah. This works for La Rosa's. I don't want to be Southwest Airlines. I don't want to be Google. I want to be La Rosa's. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's okay to take a framework, right? An idea from it, but mm-hmm. then make it your own. And it sounds like one critical piece in all this is your leadership allows you to be creative and try mm-hmm. to, like, I've heard you say it a couple of times here where like, they just kind of let me do it. Uh, I think that's really important. And I think sometimes that these creative ideas get shut down at certain levels within companies. Um, any any major failures from your creativity that you could talk about in the past? <laughs> sure. That's always fun. Uh, yeah, I, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, after Kevin's family came in and cleaned out his office, I went through, because I'm the HR guy, and I wanted to make sure if anything was confidential or if anything was you know highly people-oriented, I wanted to be safe and I could put it in my office and mm-hmm. act on it. Well, I found a diagram that my boss had asked me to draw of the company of what the company should look like instead of being an org chart. So I drew a bubble diagram. Honest to goodness, it's bubbles. It says areas of work and these people work with these people and this is how I see the flow of work. And that was in 2013. And so I found this spreadsheet that I forgot I even did in 2013. So for eight years, we didn't do anything with this funny diagram. I go, I wonder if I take this to lunch with a CEO, what he'll think. Now, my CEO is amazing and wonderful, but he is a linear thinker, and most people are. So I said, hey, bubbles. And I go, and here's the line diagram, so you're cool with it. But these, how, how these work together. He goes, man, where's this been? I said, well, I brought it up eight years ago. <laughs> And, and we weren't ready and we weren't. Um, 
there have been several things that I've done that were much more big launch type initiatives and, and uh, you can't sustain them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read an article before the pandemic about the failure of big meetings. And then I went back and go, how many big meetings have we had? You know, we had a thing called uh, you make the meal. And honest to goodness, we rented the convention center in the one of the local suburbs. We had balloons and food and cake and music. And it lasted a year. Thousands and thousands of dollars went into a people first initiative and it couldn't be sustained. Yeah. So, so I think the big launch thing is my biggest failure and it's hard because it's, it's just natural. It's what you see most companies do. I mean, Apple gets on stage and goes, here's the new watch and people lose their minds. But what they forget that when you watch their commercials, they never talk about their products. They talk about experience. Yeah. So what Apple sells is experience and you buy the watch or you buy the phone. They've got it. So they do big things well. It's more of an announcement type of thing, a launch of a product. Um, man, I, I could kick myself for all the things, the time I've wasted trying to do these big things. Yeah. Do you think that, Steve, that that's a result of, and I'm just kind of thinking from past experiences because I've certainly worked for organizations where there has been launches like that. And, do, you know, I guess, do you, do you think that those fizzle probably for a multiple of reasons, but because there's like hype thinking that the people involved that made the decision are going to think that the employees that are impacted by this are going to think that this is like so cool and it's going to change the way that I show up to work or I do work or I'm going to make more money or whatever the case may be, but that the people aren't really buying in. They don't, they don't see the hype behind, you know, what's being pushed by by the business or do you think it's something else or maybe a combination of both? I think it's a combination. Uh, I don't think that the majority of communication that happens is audience-based or audience-focused. I think it's, it's, it's initiative-focused. So uh, one of the things I just came up with this week was I want your input instead of focusing on your output. Yeah. I want, I want to hear what you have to say about this and understand we still may go in the direction I think we're going to go, but I'm going to ask you for your input. Uh, there's years of stuff on empowerment and engagement. Everything is very uh, top line and very heady. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, I want to hear from. And however you do that in organization. So if you do pulse surveys because you're large, then take that information as input, not measurement. We keep doing things to say, let's see how good we are or let's see how bad we are. Instead of saying, we're trying this on the curbside picket fantastic. Uh, I don't have it. You can't see it right now. I have a flip chart. It's my best tool ever. And I have to explain people what a flip chart is. I have markers and I color all over and I draw in wild ways. So Michael took my flip chart. He goes, Hey, can I borrow the flip chart? I go, yeah, you own the company. Sure. Go ahead. So he took it and he, I'm telling you, he was on fire that day. He took it. He banged the crap out of it, knocked the handle off of it, put it up and he goes, I want ideas right now. You guys are my team. You're talented. I know we can make this happen. And they took the markers and the flip chart. I wasn't at the meeting. Knocked it out. He came back. I saw somebody walk in like the, uh, it looked like the 1950s, big rolls of paper, you know, and they're rolling them all out. And honest to goodness, the next week, our store, where they went to, had curbside pickup. Mm -hmm. But it's because they had input 
from others and listened right. to others. We've lost sight of that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it certainly has to start with a good listening strategy, whatever that listening strategy tool is. But then I think what I also heard as a part of that, Steve, was that there wasn't like this big bang. It was something that probably is now very embedded in your culture. And like people are just doing naturally because they see the benefit and the value and because their ideas and their input were plugged in at the beginning of the idea instead of having some big event with a bunch of balloons to the example that you gave earlier and a lot of investment and money, like let's just, I I'm an example that I'm personally thinking about is DE and I strategies, you know, companies have been trying, you know, for, for various, you know, reasons and, and over a course of years to try to implement certain DE and I strategies. And with the, the change in the landscape this past year, I think companies have taken that work a lot more seriously. But if you launch that with a big bang, people are going to, the people's reaction to that is probably going to be like, oh, just another event, you know, just yes. another thing. But, you know, if they invest maybe in a DE and I source or they have somebody designated to that work and like slowly but surely there's more communication on it. There's more ways for employees to get involved and it doesn't just happen over the course of a week or a month or six months. That's when I feel like people can can grab onto it and understand the value and appreciate the time and the energy that the organization is building into that initiative. I think it's, again, a very, very good point and a very good perspective. Uh, one of the things I talk about when I give presentations is this. We're already diverse. It's a fact. Yeah. So let's embrace that. Let's embrace how we're different in order to do this. So here's one thing that we're doing. Back to your behavior thing, Mike. We're using strength finders, which isn't new, but no one uses it. Okay, It's like every assessment. We've taken 5 million assessments, and we go, well, Steve's of this or Steve's of that, and we use it to make us less diverse. So if you're an extrovert, that's a label. If you're an introvert, that's a label. Instead of saying, here's where I'm good. Here's what I do well. Mm -hmm. So if I value who you are, what you do, how you do it, that you're different, and you have strengths, I'm building diversity as part of my fabric. I'm making sure inclusivity is in there because I want to make sure you're on my team because. And then equity is going to be in there because I can't let somebody be an outlier. So you have to teach people a fabric-based approach instead of a launch of a big program. Mm-hmm. How long have you doing the how long have you been doing the strength finders? Uh, I've been trying for seven years. Okay. Uh, uh, I'll be so honest. Uh, I have an assessment on every single person, but it finally, some of these things take time. I don't think people understand. Even even if you're with a company for a short time, you can. It takes time to build good people operations, mm-hmm. because if not, you're going to put it on top of people instead of including them or forcing them through it, and you'll stumble. Had an example where I made a big change in my department. I forgot to go to one of my team. I preach this all the time and then didn't do it myself. So you, you got to allow for a little grace, a little failure, and then say, here's what's going to go. But now the strengths finders, what's fun is this. I have this matrix and I've had it for years. We use the matrix and I go, uh, well, Mike is an arranger. You know, I need an arranger on a team because right now I can't, everything seems very really fragmented. So Mike, because you're an arranger, could you come here and do this for us? And this is why I think you'd be good. And Jess is, a, a, you know, strategic. I mean, Mike, I love that you're an arranger, but Jess has a big picture thing. So why don't I have a big picture person with my person who puts things together 
and intentionally do that. Again, seen it for years, seen it written about for years, but people refuse to practice it because we think we have to focus on the output. If I can get the team oriented, uh, in this is terrible, arrogant, another arrogant time, in my new book, <laughs> uh, I came up what I thought called the theory of HR, people plus processes equals results. Typically, it's results generate more processes to get more results, to get more processes. And my contention is, if I focus on the people and equip them with processes, you need them, guess what results you'll get? And you don't know. Mm -hmm. So if I say, hey, we're going to be strengths-based, we're going to be people first, that's a people initiative, then I give you the processes to do your job better. Really genuinely, whether that's tech or tools or get barriers out of the way that help you do things better, and let's see what the results are. Uh, one of the other things that we brought back up, this was before I was here, this is a quality tool called Plan, Do, Check, Act, PDCA. Works all the time. Again, people go, cool, and we don't do it. So we'll put something in place. We, it has legs. It, we're exci excited about it. And since we're excited about it, we never check it. So part of my role is we're going to put a tickler file that says six months. How are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing? And not that you have to completely change all the time or have chaos, but you go, I checked. I'm going to tweak two points. I checked. I'm going to scrap it. I checked. But we have to build it back into what we do as a regular behavior. And we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Well, we uh, we don't think that your plug was arrogant at all. We love, we love a good <laughs> plug on this podcast. Um, and I actually think that that was an exceptional transition because we, we do want to make our listeners aware of you've written two books, published and written two books. One more recently did the, the recent one um, was that about the time of the last SHRM conference. So about 2019. Uh, it came out in 2020. It was, I was going to actually have the, we keep saying launch. You're going to go through the edit and go, I got to take this dot on word out, say way too much. But sure, in 2020, we were going to have a big push and say, here's the new book. Uh, it came out in January, February of 2020. Okay. So let, could you share with our listeners a little bit about the both of them and maybe some of the differences so that if they're looking to want to want to purchase um, and they're not really sure which one. And I'm sure your arrogant plug, which again was not arrogant, you'd say, get both of them. Both of them add a lot of value. But helping them to decipher between the two of them, I think would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Sure. The first book, HR on Purpose, I wrote because I was tired of people tearing down our profession and for people apologizing for being HR. It, it, it's embarrassing. It's the only profession I've ever been in. It's the only job I've ever had in some form or format. And I'm incredibly passionate about it because I want HR people to value what they do. You have to quit being somebody who's an also ran in your organization. And I'm not talking about role. I'm talking about owning our jobs and our roles, just like salespeople do, just like marketing people do, just like operations people do. They're very proud of, I'm an ops. You're like, woo, man, okay. And they run through a wall. HR people go, well, I'm kind of sorry. And it's it just, I want people to be more confident in what they do. So it was about ownership in being very positive about being in the profession of HR. The second one was this, and it's not a new concept, but it's again, not practiced. Lead from where you are. 
we tend to lead in organizations based on roles and titles. If I'm a C-level person, if I'm a VP-level person, those are things on a wall or a door or a business card or an email signature. It doesn't mean that you're actually good. It just means that you have the title. You can, there are the majority of HR people are in departments of one, departments of two, departments of three. They may never be a chief people officer because the company doesn't have the scale to do that. But it doesn't mean that you can't lead from a people-based focus from where you're at. So in how you practice HR, are you people first or are you not? So it wasn't really a supplementary type of approach. The first one was, doggone it, get excited about what you do. The second one is, now that you're excited, lead, not manage, lead. And if it leads to great uh, growth career-wise, wonderful. If not, wouldn't you feel more fulfilled knowing that you're driving the organization forward through people? It's something that's been missing in HR forever. And so what was when, when you released HR Rising, you know, is there, um, what, what's your favorite part of, of writing that book? Well, I think the favorite part of writing both books is I'm a storyteller. I'm not a model person. So when you read it, people go, huh, that's a good story. Yeah. And then you, you weave a point in it. And what's funny is people remember stories far more than they remember. If I said, tell me the seven habits of highly successful people, which is probably one of the most successful business books of all time. And people go, uh, there's seven. <laughs> I think procrastinating. Okay. I, and it's nothing to take away from amazing, amazing work or the 10 steps of this or the nine steps of this. I don't find that people think that way. I think people remember stories. We're much more experiential. So uh, in my, real quick, in my HR Rising book, my dad passed away last year. Uh, tough year. Yeah. <laughs> In general, Sorry to hear but that. Uh, my dad had diabetes and couldn't read. I couldn't see anyone. So the very first story is about an interaction he and I had uh, where he didn't uh, equip me to do the job he had asked me to do. And so I wrote it and it's colorful. And I sat down and read it to him. And so he laughed and laughed. He goes, that's not how it happened. But he's, he says, you know, oh, I remember that day. And I, I told you to do this and you didn't do it right. And. It was fun. I was tearing down a wall in an apartment because we were redoing a rental property. And it's uh, in my hometown and the house is over 100 years old. So it was plaster and laugh. And so he showed me and I tear up this little hole. And so I'm tearing this little hole with a crowbar and I put it down in a bucket and I take it down to the dumpster. And I just thought I was working like crazy. He came back at lunch and says, what are you doing? And, and there was a lot of language that went back and forth with us. And then he goes, why didn't you use the sledgehammer? I go, what sledgehammer? He goes, the sledgehammer that's over here. I said, you never showed me the sledgehammer. He says, well, I'll show you. And he took it and he took down an entire wall in two minutes. Took down the entire thing. He goes, do you think you could do that? And I said, that's it. I'm leaving. So I went outside the house. I'm all pissed off. Afterwards, I said, why didn't you give me the tools to do my job well? Yeah. But when I think of HR, we do that so often. We don't equip people how to be better in what we do in interactions and relationships and communication. We just put a system on top of them. Yeah. So, so you know, let's give people the sledgehammer if that's what they need. Yeah. And, and stories definitely 
resonate way more. I, I even remember from your first book, The Bowler. Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> But you yeah. know, I, I haven't read that book for a long time, and it's uh, I still remember because if I think I remember, he was just he'd walk in and he'd say "f you." Or That's right. That's how he greeted me. F right. you, Steve. I'm like, morning. Good That's to see you. Right. <laughs> but you broke through that. Um, it's a great story. It's a great result too. A great ending to you know to not not just funny on the front end, but actually you know to to watch how you kind of broke through and identify everybody has something different about them, and if you can find that. Um, you can connect with people. So um, I, I do, I know that we're, we're running short on time, but we talked a little bit in the beginning about, and I think this is a good kind of ending is uh, reset versus return. You mentioned that. Can you talk more about that? Well, it was interesting when we went through the transition here at work, Mike came up with the term of we're going to do a reset. And I, and I asked, I said, why do you want to do that? Now, one of the things that when you said earlier, what was one of the learnings from the pandemic? I went to him in the midst of things falling apart and people missing work and all. I mean, the, the real challenges of COVID. And I said, isn't it amazing that we came together because of a crisis, but we don't have the same passion when it comes to performance? And he says, yeah, jerk. It was great. He was like, don't. But I think that's part of my role. I mean, it's, it's hey, have you looked at it this way? And I said, what if we had that same drive all the time? So in this reset, it's on. And it's really fulfilling. It has re-energized so many people. Quick example. We've been, I've been in the office. I was home for a month of the whole time uh, because we took the pendulum and swung it and followed all the regulations but then I said, you know, it's not right for me to be at home when my cooks are making pizza. I just, I felt bad. Culturally, it just didn't fit. And it wasn't a, a martyr thing. But I said, how can I say, you guys need to go to work while I sit at home? So I chose to come to work. Well, I had people who were office workers, does that mean I have to come to work? I go, is that what you need to do? How do you do work best? What if we did this? I'm going to let each department head decide. But then I want to follow up with each department head. And so I know how your work's being done. Not where are people at, because how is work being done? And then we're going to check it with the field to make sure that it's happening so that they can continue to do their job well. Because if the field doesn't do their job well, what we do in the office doesn't even matter. It was a way to say, uh, I had a friend say, what's your return to work policy? I said, this is what our thing is. We expect you to work wherever you are. And they went, oh, I said, so why don't you focus on expectations, expectations instead of rules? Give people the framework in order for them to do their job well, and you have a structure. But it's not slapping in with the structure. Mm -hmm. Because the minute you do, you will make exceptions because you have to. So uh, about a month ago, we said, okay, people are getting vaccinated. We've been safe. Our numbers are low. We'd love to have you in the office if you choose. Again, go back through your department head. We will take a look at it on an individual basis. If you have any questions whatsoever, let me know. And we have a hybrid model without calling it a hybrid model. Mm -hmm. So 
I think it's resetting how you approach work in general. And we're going to try to stick with that type of approach going forward as far as we can. Yeah. Super interesting. Really quick, Jess, on that note, we've talked a lot about this um, returning to work and something you said of your cook is there and you felt like you should be there. And I've kind of taken the approach, I think, through all of this where it's like, hey, if you don't need to be at work, right, you should it should be flexible. Mm-hmm. But but as a culture, you know, I think something that maybe leaders do have to consider is how do the people who do have to be physically there feel when the other people don't have to be there? And, and do you consider that? Like, I, I get it. You're marking. You can sit at home and work and that's fine. But I guess just hearing you say that, Steve, I'm having a little more empathy for those leaders that have said, I really want everybody back. Sure. Um, I, I, think there's, I think there's two sides. We have to break the myth of visibility. This is old school. If I see you at the office, you're working. No, all you do is see me at the office. My thing is, are you interacting with me when you see me? So if it's virtual, are you engaging when you do this? Or is it just, hey, we have our, our nine o'clock stand-up meeting on at Monday at nine? Well, what what's the point of doing that? <laughs> and if it's not engaging, if you notice that Steve's not engaged, is somebody on your team going to them and going, hey, what's going on? How's it going? Is something happening? And check on their well-being, check on the things that are there. But expect expect uh, expect engagement. Well, then have an engaging meeting, talk on it. <laughs> you know. Uh, don't just throw up 75 slides and a bunch of stuff. And in the background, I have more distractions naturally. Okay. Uh, one of the things I wrote up in the new book is how to work in the midst of interruptions instead of stopping interruptions. Because interruptions are our reality. Right. So, so quit saying everything has to stop. Quick example. This is the middle of the day. During my workday, during your workdays, we're recording a podcast and everybody's still doing their job. Doing a great job. You can make time for what is important. If you want people in person, then you better be spending time with them mm-hmm. instead of just seeing them. Uh, the second thing is you have to break the myth of attendance. You know, the assumption is if you're at home, you're slacking off. You know, when I was at home, did I do laundry? Yes, because I could. That meant I didn't have to do laundry at night. So, I mean, what, what's the what are you trying to prove? A friend of mine just said this. Uh, she works for an HR tech company. We just were on a call this morning. She tried to talk about her new platform with this company. And he says, but if I can't see them on TV and know that they've logged in, how did I know that they're working? And her challenge was this. How did you know they were working before? Yeah. And he went, oh. <laughs> and she says, I don't think we're going to work with you. And she hung up on him. And it would have been a giant giant contract for her but she says if that's how you're going to approach your people i don't want our company to work with you that was the reason they were probably looking for something right to start tracking people Good tracking and monitoring yeah. yeah absolutely well um jess do you have any other otherwise uh any other questions no my follow-up question was going to be kind of similar to yours so i think we covered it um steve we definitely want our listeners to know where they can find you so please let them know a where they can find your book and i'm also not sure if your book either of your books comes in an audio version if so you know share those details and then uh, where it's best for people to connect with you okay two things you can find my books on amazon the first book hr on purpose is in electronic print and audio 
uh, HR Rising is in electronic and print. I haven't had a chance to do the audio yet, but I'm hoping to. With with things kind of opening up a little more, I think we'll get a chance to sit on record probably at the end of the year. Uh, and Amazon is where you can get them. You can even buy, buy a box set, Jess, if you want. Ooh, it's got a cover and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, but if I write a third book, which I might, it'll ruin everything. Uh <laughs> Where you can find me at two be- two places best uh, Twitter. I am very very active on Twitter uh, at s brown hr. It's s b r o w n e h r. Uh, but if you're on, understand you're going to be engaged. I'm not there just to tout about stuff. We talk, mm-hmm. and then LinkedIn, same thing. Uh, you can get me on LinkedIn. Would love to connect with people. Love to connect to my peers. Great. Great. And we'll put everything in the in the the notes uh, links for the books and everything, Steve. Thanks so much. I know that uh, we've we've been trying to get this done for a long time, and uh, I, we just appreciate it so much. It's been great. I, I love talking to both of you. Thank Thanks, you. Steve. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.